I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. I am proud to say that this episode is made possible by you. Every purchase you make from either flygal.ca or aprilvokey.com helps to keep this podcast airing. What started as a project to help archive a glimpse of our history has since turned into a small community of loyal listeners. Already at over 400,000 downloads, it's clear that these stories are not falling upon deaf ears. And for that, I thank you. This episode is dedicated to Ronnie Lacey in memory of her sister who will forever be missed. Jerry Darkus is more than just an author. Jerry has been immersed in the fly fishing industry for most of his life. As the author of the only book solely written about fly fishing the Great Lakes themselves, I was eager to have Jerry educate me about a handful of fisheries that I really knew nothing of. In this episode, Jerry explains his favorite species and methodologies to each of the Great Lakes, and he helps break down much of the confusion that seems to go hand in hand with the enormous system. was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. So, Cleveland, Ohio, fly fishing. Talk to me. What happened here? Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting one. Uh, I'm not quite sure how it all started. You know, my first interest in fly fishing that I can recall was watching the old American Sportsman TV show. Okay. And I remember I actually asked for a fly fishing outfit probably when I was about nine years old, something like that. Did your parents fish or fly fish? No. No, my parents or my dad had no concept of it at all. Right. Uh, But the first rod I ever got was a True Temper fiberglass fly rod. And at that point, True Temper rods, I think, were actually made in the Cleveland area at that time. Oh, cool. And I remember taking that out to a, a farm pond my dad and I used to fish. Oh. One of his uh, business associates uh, had a piece of property, and I had a couple poppers, and my dad had absolutely no faith that I could catch anything on that. <laughs> and he said he'd give me a quarter for each fish I caught on that, and I went home with my pockets jingling that day. Seriously? Yeah. Did yeah. you outfish him? Catching bluegills, yeah. Oh, awesome. Oh, yeah. Okay. So he was he was focused on throwing plastic worms for bass. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a bluegill popper on and just lit him up that day. So That's classic. And so you're about 10 years old at this point? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, did he ever think to make the switch? Uh, you know, over the years, he, he did fly fish a few times, but just wasn't, you know... Just really didn't get into it. You know, it was not his thing. That's fair. So then how does it progress from here? Do you fly fish all throughout high school? Uh, Well, I fly fishing was always in my background as well as other types of fishing. And I went through a period of time where, uh, like our friend Jeff Liske, ran a boat out on Lake Erie. Were you guiding? Guiding for walleye. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was... The work I was doing, but the fly fishing thing was always in the background. Okay. Always 
did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was pretty much just pond and western Pennsylvania trout stream focused. Right. You know, thinking back, I caught my first trout on a fly when I was 10 in western Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So that, that 10-year-old, a lot of cool stuff happened to me when I was 10 years old as far as, you know, coming into, into you know, the sport of fly fishing. So yeah, that was that was kind of a milestone for me. First fish on a fly, first trout on a fly, that kind of stuff. I mean, fly fishing back then, as far as popularity goes, was much different than it is now. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, especially in this area. Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially in this area. I mean, there was virtually no knowledge of it at all. We had the little shop that we've mentioned a few times, Angler's Mail, that had literally just opened up at that time frame. What era are we in? Because you're 60, right? I'm 60, so this would be in the mid-60s. Wow. The mid-60s, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, in Ohio, it was just not much happening. There was a few guys around that fly fished, but for the most part, they did it other places. They went to western Pennsylvania. They went to Michigan. Of course, in that, in that time period, there was a lot going on in Michigan on the fly fishing scene. Why? Uh, well, of course, you've got, you know, the Osable River, you know, one of the, arguably one of the more famous American trout rivers, especially from a historical standpoint, uh, with selective trout with Swisher and Richards back in that time frame. Mm-hmm. A lot of their work was done on the Osable area. Uh, the birthplace of Trout Unlimited was on the Osable so, I mean, that's a key location in the history of fly fishing in the U.S. Oh. And it's kind of been overlooked, I think, in recent I years. I didn't actually, I didn't know any of that. Yeah, yeah. So there was... I knew Swisher was in that region, but I didn't, I didn't realize all of this was happening on the U.S. Yeah, and then, I mean, even some of the stuff in that same time, uh, same time period, you had, you know, Ernie Schwiebert from Ohio. And, and a lot of the work he did on his classic nymphs book was done on the Mad River, in west central Ohio, hmm. uh, west of Columbus, which is a big spring creek. You know, there's a few trout streams in Ohio, but certainly nothing of note. Uh, but, you know, there there was stuff going on here uh, from a cold water standpoint to a certain extent. But really, Michigan is definitely a key area, certainly central western Pennsylvania. And, you know, that was in my range as far as being able to get and do things. Uh, my dad's family had a hunting camp in north central Pennsylvania. Your dad was, if I recall, he's a, he was a butcher? Uh, yeah, worked with uh, meat, poultry. Mm-hmm. But their family had a hunting camp in, uh, in the mountains in north central Pennsylvania. And, you know, there's all kinds of various sized trout streams there. And we made a couple trips over there every year. And that kind of, you know, added to my knowledge base yeah uh yeah it's kind of been an ongoing process since then yeah i'll say so let's talk about who you are and what you do because you're a very humble man you're you're very understated i would say you don't speak highly you don't speak of yourself very often jerry and everybody else has to do it for you you're that guy and we love you for it but i need you to tell me tell people who are listening who you are and what you do who i am well well, I hate that. Who you are and what you do are very different things. Yeah. Tell them what you do for work. For work? Sure. Let's okay. start with for work. So these days, uh, I am a 
rep within the fly fishing industry. Mm-hmm. Okay, I work for a number of key product lines. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. This, this podcast, nobody owns this. Okay. You hit me with them. Who do you work for? Okay, so I work with I work for Scott Flyrods. have worked with them for over 20 years. Uh, scientific Anglers for a number of years. Abel, Ross, Corkers, a uh, couple knick-knack accessory companies, actually a couple different fly companies. So I've been an on-road sales rep for... Like 25 years. Yeah. Cover a big chunk of the central Midwest Great Lakes area. In the past, I've done a lot of not only lake guiding, but uh, river guiding for our migratory rainbows here that, you know, come out of Lake Erie. Now, are you calling, and I apologize for my ignorance, are you calling your steelhead rainbows right now? I'm doing that in, doing in that respect for, me, for all the Pacific Northwestern <laughs> folks who might be listening that don't want our Great Lakes fish called steel. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just getting a little dig in there. Okay, we'll you take know, it. You yeah. Know, you know, so, yeah, that's why I'm doing it that way. Well, I'm, I'm just going to let you slide with that. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. Um, okay, so rainbows. Yep. So I, I was actually, as to my knowledge, I was the first fly fishing only guide on the Lake Erie, the Ohio Lake Erie tributaries. You were? I was. Wow, okay. Fly fishing only. I mean, there was guides prior to me. Right. But as to my knowledge, I was the first guy to really focus on fly fishing. Yeah, you know, it's funny because you and I do this circuit. It's, it's, been, a, it's been a few times now. How many times have we done this circuit? Uh, it's the third time. Okay, so you and I team up together for basically a month. Three weeks, is it feels like a month. Yeah. And we do this circuit. And... Together, we go to all these different shops, and of course, you do your business with the shops, and I teach the students how to either cast or tie, or I give a presentation, and people show up to see me, but when they see I'm with you, I hear them be like, oh my God, Jerry, you inspired me to do this, and oh, Jerry, I remember watching you cast back then. You got me into fly fishing. Oh, Jerry, I remember you supplying me with my first fly tying materials. And I hear it. I may be having conversation with other people, but I hear it in the in the corners of the room. People talking about you helping them with fly fishing. That's very interesting to me because I'm starting to realize that this whole time that we've been on tour, and I've been sharing the word about the old guard, but I'm telling people out here about the old guard from the Pacific Northwest. I'm on circuit with one of the guys that the people out here consider the old guard. And I know you hate the word old, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I just never really have thought about myself in that, in that, you know, in that light. But I guess, you know, I guess I'm there now, I guess, you know. Scary, isn't it? Looking at it that way. Yeah, uh, I guess I am kind of one of the old old guard, at least in this area, for a lot of things. I mean, I've done a lot of tying classes. I've done a lot of casting classes, you know. And when I was, when I was guiding regularly, uh, I mean, there was a stretch of, oof, boy, 10 to 15 years where I, I I put a lot of people on their first fly rod fish. Yeah. You know, and so I guess uh, if I think back on that a little bit, yeah, I guess I guess I am there. <laughs> Surprise! Surprise! Uh-oh. Jeez. <laughs> well, something that's definitely established your position as being there is your writing. So let's talk about your latest books. Books, plural? Yeah. Okay. Well, the first, well, let's kind of step back a little bit. Let's, you know, yeah. uh, 
my writing, the writing side of things, uh, I actually got involved doing stuff for kind of an old newsprint publication called uh, The Ohio Sportsman, uh, and I did a monthly, small monthly fly fishing column for them. Uh, I got into that uh, through the fellow that was uh, the outdoor writer for our local Cleveland paper, Darcy Egan. I, I think you've met mm -hmm. Darcy in the past. Yeah. Yeah, so he kind of got me into that, and uh, I had done a lot of writing in college and that, you know, creative writing and stuff, so I had some background on it. But after, oh, a year or so of, uh, you know, doing that, I said, you know, I wonder if I can take this a little bit further. And I actually started to query a couple publications at that point, uh, and wow, they actually, you know, accepted some of my ideas and that, which was pretty shocking. <laughs> you know, I was like, gee, maybe something's going on here. So, you know, long story short, you know, I, I've written probably dozens and dozens of magazine pieces over the years. And I think at this point now, I've been in, I think, every major fly fishing publication uh, I've had something in. So, uh, and then the offshoot of that then was based on just the knowledge I had from fishing the Great Lakes all my life. I love to fish big water, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I've, I do, I've done it a lot in salt water over the years, too. Uh, it just, I don't know, it's it just something that really intrigues me, and being able to duplicate things that we did on the big lakes that the gear guys were doing and trying to figure out how to make that happen with a fly rod. Mm-hmm was always something that I was very, very interested in. I caught my first fish on a fly in Lake Erie about 30 years ago. Okay. Uh, and actually guided fly fishermen on Lake Erie for a number of years. Was there a demand for that? Uh, there was a small demand for it, or it was a curiosity mm -hmm. or something. Uh, but I worked mainly with uh, one uh, shop down in Columbus, Mad River Outfitters, who you're aware of. Yeah, they're excellent. Yep, and, uh, you know, we did... They would send, you know, groups up and, you know, I'd, I'd do the fly rod thing with them uh, out on Lake Erie. And just kind of that whole knowledge base and, and being able to travel to different parts of the Great Lakes and just seeing the different opportunities that were out there. There was a few guys fly fishing here, Lake Ontario. There's a few guys fly fishing in Lake Michigan, a few guys in Lake Superior. So each each lake had a guy or two or a guide or two that was doing it, uh, but there was never a central piece or, you know, uh, just anywhere where the information was organized under a... a like uh, one umbrella. Yeah, one umbrella. where you could, Somewhere you could go and at least get the starting point, you know, to point you in the right direction. Yeah, so you're basically always on a wild goose chase. Yeah. You know, so I felt, well, you know, I wonder if I could actually pull this off and come up with a, uh, uh, a book uh, that would be kind of like the starting point for someone who was wanted to fish mm -hmm. in the Great Lakes themselves. Yeah, and this is pretty recent because I remember being on circuit with you while you were writing your book. Yeah. So when, when was the book published? Yeah, the Last book was published two like ago? two and a half, three years ago. Uh, is when it finally came out. It took me about three years 
to put everything together. And, it and, took you about 60 years to put it all together. Well, it took me about 60 years <laughs> to put it all together. That's right. But, yeah, so it's been it's been on the market now for, I guess, about three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's done r- relatively well. What's it called again? It's called Fly Fishing the Inland Oceans, an angler's guide to locating and catching fish in the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. And I truly believe that the Great Lakes is one of the best fly fishing destinations on the planet. And I'm not talking about tributary stuff. Tributary stuff, from a steelhead and salmon standpoint, uh, you know, I did not want to duplicate that. It had been done numerous times and done very, very well. Mm -hmm. So there was no need for me to go down that to go down that line. No, this was a very new venture. Yeah. I've actually never seen anything else quite like it on the market. There, you know, there's a few kind of localized things that were that were done. A fellow by the name of Sean Parrish has some stuff that was done like on Lake Superior. And I'm just trying to think off the top of my head here, but that was one of the few that had anything to do with big lake fly fishing or Great Lakes fly fishing, right. period. A number of years ago, uh, there was a uh, fellow by the name of George Von Schrader who... Uh, that might be one of the coolest names I've ever heard. Yeah. Cool guy. George Von Schrader. Yeah. And and he was his book was called Carper Game Fish. Okay. And basically it was a look at fly fishing for carp in the Great Lakes. Uh and you know, he actually laid out a series of locations and and, and did a fair amount of travel around the lakes to locate uh areas, you know, that for fly fishing for carp, but that's where it was. That that was it. Mm-hmm. There was nothing beyond the carp aspect it's a of it. Species specific. Yeah, so it was very species specific. So what I wanted to do was create something that covered as much of the area as possible uh, and covered the species from cold water to warm water, and just have all that information available under. You know, again, a single cover where somebody could go and, okay, I can start with this. Mm-hmm. This is going to point me in the right direction. Yeah, and the cool thing about your book, too, Jerry, because you know, I mean, we spend, I consider you one of my good friends. We spend a lot of time together. Right. You must be sick to death listening to me preach to people that they need to be reading and they need to be supporting authors and they need to be buying books and this, that, and the other thing. But a lot of people really want to have images in in their face right away. They don't want to be drowning in text. Your book's really cool because there's photos on almost every... I mean, is there a photograph on every single page? Just about. It's it's really, really visually appealing from start to finish. So I'm just kind of flipping through it right now. And the thing is, is that you start explaining not just how to read water, but you explain the different species of fish. You explain how to gear up for the fish. You explain the lakes specifically. It's really user-friendly. I, I see this as a very user-friendly book. Well, that was the idea. And, you know, I got to thank Stackpole and Jay Nichols for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, they put it together into just a very, very attractive package. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, that, that was the plan to get it, you know, want you to look at it. When you go to one page... You want to go to the next page because the information is there, and you and it's, it's, it's there in front of you. It's easy to figure it out. Uh, you know, there's fly patterns in there. I mean, we just wanted to get the info there. 
know, for the user to, to take advantage of. I mean, that's the whole idea. Well, let's do a little bit of Q&A right here. So something that I think is very interesting, just in flipping through the chapters here, is that towards the end of the book, or I guess about, no, about halfway through, you begin to, uh, you start to title your chapters as per the lake that you're in. So you've got the five Great Lakes all listed here, mm -hmm. being Erie, Huron, Michigan, Superior, Ontario, and Lake St. Clair. Right. What's going on with Lake St. Clair? Is there something I don't know? Well, Lake St. Clair is, is really deserves not only a chapter of its own, you could probably do a fly fishing book on Lake St. Clair. Can you tell my listeners? I fished it with you, and I can tell you that it is one of the coolest fisheries I've ever experienced. Yeah. Can you tell people who live in, I don't know, Norway, what Lake St. Clair is? So Lake St. Clair is actually a part of the connecting system between Lake Huron and Lake Erie. So the outlet of Lake Huron is the St. Clair River. It actually goes in... Uh, informs Lake St. Clair, then the Detroit River drains Lake St. Clair and into Lake Erie. So Lake St. Clair is 400 square miles of probably some of the best warm water fly fishing habitat on the planet, you know, looking from a freshwater standpoint. Mm -hmm. it's, it's weed beds, weed edges, pockets in weeds, sunken wood, gravel bars, rock piles, sand flats. I mean, anything that you could put into a lake to make it a great, not only fishing lake, but to create it for fly fishing is in that lake. The average depth is probably 10 to 12 feet. Hmm. Okay. Other than, you know, the, the main channel for, for shipping in that. Mm -hmm. The water is generally very clear. It's beautiful water. Uh, which makes it really nice from a fly fishing standpoint, very visual. You know, if you get a big blow, uh, you know, and the water gets churned up, it'll be dirty for a couple days, but it, it usually settles out and, and cleans itself out quite quickly. The other interesting thing about it is it overturns its volume, I'm trying to remember exactly what it is, but every, you know, within a couple weeks, it, it overturns its volume. So there is a constant flow of, of water from Lake Huron, uh, through Lake St. Clair and then down into Lake Erie then. Hmm. Uh, it's just loaded with food for the fish species there. Really good growth rates. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty healthy system these days. And what's in it? We've got largemouth, smallmouth, musky. Musky, northern pike. Stripers. Well, yeah, white, white, bass, white bass, stripers, yeah. Let's see what, yellow perch. Did we mention walleye? Mm -hmm. uh, of course, years, and you'll actually get some transitional cold water species going through there at times too. Yeah, yeah, they don't really stay in there for any length of time, you know, because it gets relatively warm during the summer. But you know, you'll have some cold water fish will actually go in and migrate through at times too. So it's it's a very very cool fishery. Yeah. Okay, so that's why you've included it. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's arguably. Again, you can talk to different people about it, but you'd be hard-pressed to find a better smallmouth bass fishery mm -hmm. at present time. I could, I could attest to that. Yep. Yeah. And also, it's probably considered the premier musky fishery 
that there is anywhere. Because I really don't want to lose anybody who has no interest in fishing the Great Lakes system, and I know how easy it is because you're looking at one of those people who for years I would just I just had zero interest in fishing the Great Lakes system. Mm-hmm. Um, largely in part, well, almost 100% due to my own ignorance, but also I just associated Great Lakes with non-anadromous steelhead and salmon. I just didn't have any motivation to go and fish for a lot of those fish. Right. Now, that's since, of course, been changed. And I've told a million people now that how much I love fishing for steelhead, especially when it comes to Michigan. But fishing the Great Lakes proper with you and with Brian completely changed my outlook on things. Mm-hmm. And I want to be able to have the opportunity to do that with some of our listeners. So rather than just talk about how great the fishing is, let's just talk a little bit about how fantastic the water is. Because I know there's this perception for a lot of people that the Great Lakes equal man-made product. But the Great Lakes are one of our natural wonders. And I just want to talk about why they are so special naturally. I mean, how did they even come to be? All right, well, so the the Great Lakes, as we know them today, you know, were formed after the last ice advance or ice age Mm -hmm. so approximately 10,000 years ago is when you know the ice started to recede Uh, and the lakes as we presently see them are the result of of that now some of the interesting things you know if we look at some of the statistics out there 20 percent of all the fresh water on earth is in the great lakes okay that's unbelievable yeah okay 10% of all the fresh water on Earth is in one lake, in Lake Superior. Lake Superior is just an immense body of water. Hence its name. Well, I guess that's where it came from. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, I believe by surface area, uh, it's the largest lake in the world. I think at one point, uh, or maybe still, Lake Baikal from a volume standpoint, was considered the largest lake just by how much water it was in it. Okay, so I'd have to kind of go back and double check some of that. But regardless, I mean, it's it's Huge. big. You know, it, it it's kind of funny, and we get people come in from say the West Coast or something like that, and and they think the Great Lakes are oh yeah yeah you just we'll drive down and you know you can see the other side of it and that, <laughs> and even you know we take them to downtown Cleveland and they're like wow. This is really big. And it's like, yeah, you know, Lake Erie is like over 200 miles long and like average is probably 35 to 40 miles wide. So, yeah, there's a lot of water there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, in addition to the lakes themselves, some of the connecting waters are really, really cool. And again, just wonderful standalone fisheries, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, you've been to the Niagara River, so you've seen that. And, you know, I don't want to harp on the fishing side of it, but, you know, I I would look at that as as one of the great fly fishing places anywhere. Yeah, I would agree. You know, just for being able to do it 365. I mean, you could literally fish the Niagara River almost every day of the year if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. It'd get a little gnarly weather-wise at times, Uh, but... There is great shore access, unbelievable boat fishing opportunities, uh, and again, a really cool change of species throughout the course of the year. So that's, that's you know, Lake St. Clair is one of my favorites. Niagara River is one of my favorites. You know, if I had to really pick two really, really cool places, you know, the, 
those would be probably the first two on my list. I can understand why. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about species. So which fish were are indigenous to the Great Lakes? Well, from a cold water standpoint, let's start there. Okay. Uh, lake trout has historically found in all five of the Great Lakes. Okay. Brook trout in Lake Superior and probably northern parts of Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, and Atlantic salmon in Lake Ontario. Now, contrary to popular belief, my own as well, they didn't come from the... Did they come from the ocean through the St. Lawrence? So... Yeah, I see the big breath of exasperation. You know, there is... I can't answer that question 100%. Me neither, because every time I try to write about it, somebody sends me a slap on the wrist. I don't know yeah, what so, so if you want to call them a landlocked population of Atlantics, that's fine. Okay. Okay. But, you know, they were in Lake On... Did they migrate to the ocean? You know, possibly some got down through there. I heard they could. They could. Whether they did or not, I'm not sure anybody knows. But, so let's call them a landlocked population. Okay. How did they get there? You weren't around 10,000 years ago to figure that out? No, I wasn't. I'm not quite that old yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> that one I didn't, you know. Yeah, so who knows what, what happened. What happened, you know. And I'm sure there's biologists and such out there that probably know the answer to that. Okay. But, you know, if you go back historically and, and look at uh, some of the accounts of, I mean, just the numbers of fish, if you look, you know, in the province of Ontario yeah. and, and, and in New York State, it's like... I mean, really amazing how many fish, of course... They said that there were so many Atlantic salmon in Ontario that they would use pitchforks and use them as fertilizer. Yeah, I know. Sad, isn't before it? Before they destroyed it with dams. It's yeah. devastating. Yeah, so so you go back into some of the historical accounts and, and even, uh, you know, some of the... Looking at some of the warm water stuff, too. Yeah, you know, so what's indigenous like, in the, in the so warm water? So warm water, indigenous species, of course, smallmouth bass, northern pike, muskies, uh, a variety of, of smaller fish. Uh, Were largemouth not an you know, like Largemouth too, sure. Okay. Yep. You know, we had the silver bass, white bass, stripers, whatever you want to call them, yellow perch, walleye. What about carp? Carp are European import. Oh, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, okay. so yeah, carp were brought over in the 1800s and late 1800s and kind of, you know, were spread by various means throughout the whole country. Okay. Yeah, so they are not native to the to the Great Lakes. Just back to, to cold water, let's go to salmon sure. and steelhead, who are obviously not indigenous. Not indigenous, no. Let's start with steelhead first. Okay. Because the first steelhead were brought in into the Great Lakes area in, I believe, 1873, in that time frame there. Uh, they were fish from the McLeod River in California. Uh, and they were planted in the Osable River uh, at the mouth down near the town of Oscoda. Mm -hmm. So they were actually originally in, in Lake Huron first. Why? What was the purpose? Just for recreation? Uh, yeah. It, it's, yeah. I mean, so at that time period, you know, the Transcontinental Railroad had kind of just opened up. So we had brook trout and stuff being brought out west and western fish species being brought back this direction okay uh and you know so the first rainbows were were stocked uh, again in the early 1870s and then there were subsequent stockings at various locations around the lake some successful 
some not successful. Mm-hmm. And again, you can go back in in some of the historical texts and in things even regarding the commercial fisheries. Like in the early 1900s, there was they talk about catching rainbows as part of commercial catch of uh, netting. Harvest. That. Harvest, yeah. yeah. So they were part of the catch by that point. And again, I think we talked about Hemingway doing his his story in the uh, Toronto Star in, I think, 1921 okay. about the rainbow trout fishing at the the rapids in the St. Mary's River. And he raved about it. Yeah. So, you know, so that was off of those original stockings. We're looking now down you know, 40, 50 years down the road. So steelhead were brought in first. Oh, yeah, way, way before anything else. Oh, that's my fault. Okay, got it. Yeah. Now, there were some attempts to establish Pacific salmon in that, you know, in the earlier time frame, but they were not successful, and it probably just had to do with the forage base that was available at that point. Okay, because the forage base at that point consisted of? Well, there was a lot of deep water species of, chubs and whitefish and other things like that of course emerald shiners and spot tail shiners and and such like that but probably not the right mix to support pacific salmon okay you know of course you know and you had crayfish and all kinds of other things like that so fast forward into the uh the 1950s time frame. Ooh, that's a big jump. That's a big jump, but so, but it's significant. That's when the St. Lawrence Seaway opened up for passage of ocean-going boats into the Great Lakes. Can you explain what you mean by that? A series of locks so that ocean-going size freighters and that could now reach the waters of the Great Lakes. Can this, you explain it, what they did? It's for- an artificial waterway that was built so they could bypass the rapids okay. with big ocean-going size boats. In the St. Lawrence? In the St. Lawrence. So that was one part of the equation. Got it. So that opened up Lake Ontario to a host of invasive species at that point. Excuse my history and my ignorance with this history here. How did they open it up? Was there dynamite involved? I mean, Sure. Okay, so they basically... This is like a huge construction project. Blew it bigger. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So it's, you know, they, yeah, it's just, and then locks themselves, if there's an elevation change... Okay, for example, you can't just dig a ditch and necessarily have boats go up it. No. Okay, yeah. if there's a big elevation change. So there is a series of almost like, what do we want to call them, tanks or pens, where they'll, a boat will go in, they'll fill it with water. Yeah. So they can now go into the next one, and they may then fill that one up so you can go over that elevation change. They fill the locks with water? Yeah. So it's, they basically step it up for you. Exactly. So the boats can go up a step at a time. Wow. That must have been expensive. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but that obviously must have boomed the economy. Yeah. So again, it opened shipping out of the Great Lakes to the world at that point. Wow. Now, that was, that was part of the equation. The other part of the equation was the Welland Canal, which connects then Lake Ontario to Lake Erie. Because you have your 200-whatever-foot drop from Niagara Falls. Mm-hmm. They have to, again, go over that. Right. So, again, a ser- another series of locks, canals, whatever you want to call it. Right. So, again, the boats can now go up to that. The gradient. Yeah, go up, yeah, go uphill, right. so to speak, at that wow, point. Wow, this is so cool. I did not know any of this. Yeah. So these are huge, huge construction projects, so no doubt about it. 
Absolutely. Uh, and again, even on the St. Mary's River, there's locks on the St. Mary's River that, again, give access to Lake Superior then. Now, how is this, because I know that at some point where you're bringing me, the, the path that we're going down here is this opens up waterways for bait fish or other fish or non-indigenous fish to come in. Yeah, so this is when the whole parade of invasive species started in the Great Lakes. Coming up, Jerry speaks with me about invasive species, Great Lakes steelhead, and much more. At the time of this podcast publication, Christmas will be just around the corner. Why make your shopping any more difficult than it has to be? With free shipping on orders over $100, and with the U.S. dollar really putting our Canadian dollar to shame, there's truly no better time to visit www.flygal.ca and see if you can get a head start on those stocking stuffers. Thank you again for the support. Is the St. Lawrence at this point the only true opening or potential opening to the ocean? Yeah. Okay, so now they've just made it so so species from the ocean can come in. Yes. But obviously there's a lot of species who can't survive to be in adramus or, or to be able to live in fresh and salt. Correct. But there's some, so which some are those? Some can do it. Okay. So the, one of the first ones to come in was the sea lamprey. Oh, okay, okay. You know those nasty things. Yeah, they're awful. They're awful and ugly. And, you know, there's actually some natural lampreys, you know, in in the lakes already. But the big sea lamprey, they came in and just devastated, you know, the native lake trout. Mm-hmm. That, to the point of almost extinction in some cases. How? Because they're not eating the lake trout. Are they just sticking to them and draining their blood? Yeah. They oh. just, yeah. They just... They kill their own host? Yeah. That's not very smart. Well, then they go find another one. Okay. God. Okay. Gross. Yeah. Bloodsuckers. Bloodsuckers, yeah. So that was, you know, kind of the first really big notable invasive species. And and they're still struggling with controlling those. I, heard that, I mean, yeah. it's it's still a problem. Alewives also came in. Now, what are they exactly? They're like a herring, a, a, a herring type fish. And they're about how many inches in length? Oh, they're, you know, they vary in size, but I, three to six, seven, eight inches, you know. And just the habitat was great for them, and they migrated through Lake Ontario, Lake Erie, and Lake Michigan. Like a lot of invasives, you know, the population just boomed and boomed and boomed and boomed. And it reached a point in the uh, late 50s and, and early 60s where there'd be huge die-offs of these alewives. Uh, just, you know, they'd kind of boom, and then for whatever reason, whether it's illness or just not enough food to support them, they'd die off. And in Lake Michigan in particular, there would, uh, I mean, the beaches would be just like a foot thick of just rotted alewife carcasses. So it wasn't like the Capelin on the East Coast where they come in and spawn and then they die. They were just dying? Well, it might have been, you know, part, again, a combination of things. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was just one cause that was killing them, but, uh, you know, they would just wash up on the beaches and, and be like literally a foot or two thick of just rotted fish carcasses. Ew, the resorts must have loved that. Yeah, so you can imagine what that was like. Yeah. So, okay, what are we going to do to try and control these fish? As I have heard the story, they considered possibly striped bass and Pacific salmon and 
For some reason of which I can't tell you at right at this point, they settled on the Pacific salmon. Okay. So steelhead weren't doing the Steelhead job. were there and weren't steelhead are much more opportunistic feeders. Okay. They can eat all kinds of stuff, uh, as we know. Whereas the King's Chinook salmon in particular really found the these alewives to their liking. Oh, okay. And had, you know, had the right nutrient to where they would survive feeding on them and so the pacific salmon were stocked and that was in 63 maybe but early 60s and essentially has you know it created literally pretty much a billion dollar industry on its own from from a sport fishing standpoint were there any sort of drawbacks to it or any sort of consequences? Well, they helped control the alewife population. So from that standpoint, they did what they were supposed to do. Did as far they throw the balance off of any other ecosystem? You know, I don't think they had a significant impact at that point because they, they really didn't compete with anything else. Now, they, may, they probably had a bit of an effect maybe on some of the native stream bred trout in, in some of the tributaries, you know, where... They, where the salmon came back in abundance. Uh, but even if we look like at a river like the Paramarquette River in Michigan, which, by the way, was the first river where brown trout were stocked in North America. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's maintained a really good, healthy brown trout fishery in spite of, you know, the, the salmon being present. Right. You know, too. So we've reached a point now, though, where the salmon have kind of done what they're supposed to do. And they're, they, the alewife populations have dropped significantly in Lake Huron and Lake Michigan to the point where the salmon fishing has become un, very unpredictable. So their survival rates just aren't the same? Well, they don't have the food base. Have they stopped stocking them? Or are they naturally reproducing at this point? There is some natural reproduction. Uh, there has still been a lot of stocking, again, to support the lake charter boat industry. Okay. okay. Okay, got it. But now on the other hand though, we're seeing the lake trout population starting to come back in both Lake Huron and Lake Michigan and Lake Ontario. Okay. Uh you know, so the problem is they kind of created a monster with with the king salmon in particular cuz this huge uh lake fishery was developed around them. Right. You mean from an from an economist? A, spot, from, a sport fishing industry. From yeah. a sport fishing industry. Okay. Yeah. Because I hear yeah. a lot of people upset right now. The fishery is obviously declining. or in Right. Normal. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I'm not sure anybody really know, doesn't have the right answer right now or doesn't know the answer. Uh, you know, because we've had some situations recently that, you know, we haven't seen in a long, long time. For example, the last two years, the lakes froze over almost 100% which hadn't happened for a long, long time. So is that having some effect on the food chain? Don't know. You know, so there's all kinds of speculation. We don't really know long-term what's going to happen at this point. But going back to the steelhead, so if you look through the 20s, 30s, 40s, there was, there was guys out there that were fishing for steelhead and, fly, and, and some fly fishing form too. Uh, it never really gained a huge following that, you know, I'm aware of. It was pretty, again, pretty localized. Mm-hmm. But steelhead took on significance again when guys started looking at looking and trying to catch salmon in, 
in the rivers. I'm kind of call this maybe the beginning of the golden age of Great Lakes Steelhead, maybe in the 70s, uh, where we had, you know, a lot of well-known anglers coming to fish steelhead in the Great Lakes. Uh, the awareness came from people that were, you know, originally coming for, you know, to fish for the salmon, mm -hmm. but then what are these big trout that are here? Ah, I see, okay. Okay. And I think in that time frame also then, you know, there was some expansion of stocking and things, especially, you know, in the Lake Erie and that, you know, the whole thing has just kind of grown since then. Right. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're condensing decades of history here into, yeah, you know, a few it. sentences. Yeah. But uh, to the point now where I think our knowledge and interest in steelhead fishing has gone way beyond drifting egg flies. <laughs> which is kind of how everybody started. Yeah. All right. To where we're swinging flies when available. And even some of you are fishing dry And flies. even catching fish on dries once in a while, skated dries and stuff like that, that. That's right. You know, and then there's been different strains of steelhead brought in. Mm. Some, are, some are pretty pure strain. For example, Little Manistee River in Michigan really, to my knowledge, hasn't had any supplemental stockings for many, many many years, if at all, since the original ones. So it's a very pure strain fish, and they form the basis of a lot of the, the fish that are stocked in various locations around the lakes. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a you know winter-run, spring-spawning strain of fish, and very hardy. Uh, I assume after 150 years or whatever of being present that uh, you know, there may be some sort of additional adaptation starting to go on. Yeah, they're making uh, their own strain. Yeah, so for example, in Ohio, we get eggs, you know, from, I'm not going to say native, from wild fish, mm -hmm. from the little manistee, and fertilized eggs from there. So, yes, they're raised in a hatchery and then stocked, but, I mean, they're they're a step away from a wild fish. They're, they're really high-quality fish. But there's also... Pretty significant natural reproduction of rainbows uh, in various locations around the Great Lakes, too. Mm -hmm. So it's not just strictly an artificial planting that's going on. There is a lot of natural reproduction. Let me ask you something that I've never been able to wrap my head around. And this is not just, this is not just specific to your region. I see guys, and even when I was 16, 17 years old, I would do what I'm about to talk about. It's dark salmon. So, in our neck of the woods, as you become a more experienced angler, you stop grip and graining with black salmon. And uh, I look back now at pictures of myself, you know, 16 years old, holding a big black salmon in the kitchen and being proud. And, and, and I, my stomach gets a little sick. But out here, I've noticed that it's kind of the norm. It seems like people are really proud of their dark salmon. And... Um, I can't wrap my head around it. So is it that they come into the system already darker because they're coming in from the fresh water rather than the salt? Well, it's probably a combination of things. Uh, they're coming in, I think, quite mature already. Right. And they're only traveling a short distance. Okay, so a large part of their maturation process is in the ocean. I mean, I'm sorry, is in the Great Lakes itself. Right. Yeah, so, so they're coming in. I mean, pretty much ready to roll right away. 
Okay. Okay. That makes a big difference. Yeah, and you know, for I'm just trying to think the longest distance a, a salmon in Lake Michigan would have to travel to hit a spawning area is probably I don't know, maybe fifty miles, okay. river miles, if that. Right. Okay. You know, there might be a few places where they would travel a little bit longer. You know, so there's not there's not the time frame to have those fish come in, in in a real silvery stage and stay that way for a period of time. Right. Plus the the salmon, at least the kings uh, that they've been utilizing in the Great Lakes, I think, are in Northern California fish that may be different than what your British Columbia or Alaska kings are. Okay. So isn't that all the more reason then to just fish for the Chinook salmon in the Great Lakes proper? Yeah. Can you target them in the Great Lake? They're very with a fly. They they're hard to target. They're just deep. Yeah, they're just again. They just seem to behave a little bit differently than than the Pacific Northwest fish. I mean, I've there's a few a few of us that have specifically tried to catch them on flies in the lake and you you will get one once in a while uh you know we've had pretty fair success at you know some of the river mouth locations when they're staging Mm -hmm. to spawn but when they're out wandering in the depths of the lakes you know if they're down 80 feet and 300 feet of water again that's one area where yeah fly is not really that conducive conducive to it so it's uh, the same thing as in, in in on the west coast then yeah. it's hard to go target anything in such a vast body of right. water yeah okay what about bucktailing for coho uh they will hit flies quite well if you can locate them yes okay there's just there's not the number of cohos that have been planted as as kings Got it. Okay, so they just don't plant as many cohos. Have you guys figured out their migratory route? Uh, is there any way of being able to not track them, but be able to find them at any given time in the year? They have a pretty good handle on that, yeah. Okay. Okay, I'm going to throw out a fishery, and I want you to tell me immediately the first thing that comes to mind from a fishing stance. Lake St. Clair. Musky and smallmouth. Okay, and if I were to ask you the most interesting thing about fishing for them specifically to Lake St. Clair, what would it be from a methodology stance? From a, oh, wow. Uh, A lot of it's visual. Like sight fishing. Almost like sight fishing. I mean, there's times when you can sight fish both smallmouth and muskie in Lake St. Clair, and these are not for spawning fish. No, you, yeah, you don't, do you fish for them on, when they're on beds? No. Okay. No. Uh... I'm not going to say I never have, but I don't anymore. Yeah, it's okay. You know, we try and hit them pre-spawn or post-spawn. I just had to get a jab in there somewhere. Yeah, I know. Not at you. Uh, But, uh, yeah, so visual, uh, intermediate sinking lines most of the time, not always. Okay. Uh, I would say anybody interested in fishing big water anywhere, doesn't matter where it is, learn how to use a sinking line. I mean, it's one of the best fishing tools fly fishing tools out there that most people don't know how to use. Uh, modern sinking lines are amazing. What do you uh, think is is the number one thing that people do wrong when they're fishing them, when you say they don't know how to use them? They, they're they scared of them. What do you mean? Because they, they're heavy and they hurt when you hit yourself? Well, you know, kind of, because they don't, 
you can't visually see where your fly's at. It's not floating, or nor is it attached to a bobber. Mm. Okay, so that uh, that's I think the biggest thing, and. and Guys that come into fly fishing from a gear background, ah. okay, they understand it because these lines now have very controlled sink rates. Right. We know what those are. So, I mean, there's times you can, you know where your fly is at all the time with a sinking line now. Right. All you got to do is like, okay, if my line sinks at eight inch per second. You have to know how to count. You got to know how to count and okay. do a little bit of math. Do you think some people are deterred by fishing sinking lines simply because they feel like in the time that it takes for your fly to sink, they're slowly losing the, the you know what they perceive fly fishing to be? I think that's probably part of it. Uh, do you think that's accurate? No. I mean, I fish a lot of sinking lines because I live half the year in Australia. So sure. of course, you know, to well, me, that's look second at, nature, look but... at like in BC. Look at the stillwater fisheries. You know, you have for yeah, trout. yeah, and that's that's intermediate sinking. You know, full sink lines. You're talking about a bunch of snobby guys though, who see if anyone's trolling a leech, they automatically say it's not fly fishing, and if anyone's throwing an indicator, which is typically how they're chronometing in the lakes, you know, they'll say that's not fly fishing too. Okay. So yeah. I just it's it's kind of a I think it's a little bit ignorant, and sometimes I just kind of want to you know make it clear that if you want to catch a lot of these species, you do need to have that depth it's just the nature of the beast yeah you gotta have i mean you gotta be able you gotta be able to adapt and adjust as needed i mean it's yeah you know i i don't have the luxury of having great trout streams here where you know i can go out at just about any time i want and expect a hatch or something like that so we're we're making do with what we have here and yeah. we have great opportunities to do things yeah uh, you know, so, but learning how to use a sinking line will make anybody a better angler. Okay. Even stream fishing for trout, you know, look at streamers, thinking lines. That's, that's part of the program these days. Yeah. You know, to target the really big fish. And it would have been part of the program back in the old days if they'd had them. Exactly. Okay. So, so next rapid fire. Mm-hmm. Lake Huron. First species that comes to mind. That's impressive. Lake Huron, Atlantic salmon. Okay, and the first methodology that comes to well, mind. Well, I'm going I'm to, and I'll say the St. Mary's River, which is... But we're in tributaries. I'm talking about no, this proper. No, this is a connecting water. Ooh, you're excited. Tell me what you're okay, thinking. Okay, so I, this is not a tributary. This is the connector between Lake Superior and Lake Huron. But it's a river. Or it's a, it, chan it's a canal. It's, it's a natural waterway. How wide is it? Uh... Depending on where you're at, anywhere from a few hundred yards to several miles. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. I'm getting a visual. Yep. So there's been a stocking program of Atlantic salmon in St. Mary's River for a number of decades now, and it's been quite successful as far as the returns they get. Mm -hmm. uh, natural reproduction has been somewhat limited, well, quite limited, just again because certain nutrients are absent in the food base that allow the, the eggs to develop properly and things like that. Oh. But, but this is one place where anybody can drive, park, walk, and reasonably expect to, if they're going to put a couple days work in, 
catch catch an Atlantic salmon on a swung fly. Without needing a boat. Without needing a boat, without spending lots and lots of money to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can make it happen there. Yeah. Uh, it's a very cool place. Uh, we've caught steelhead there in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a resident trout population. It's a pretty cool piece of water. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the... Every drop of water coming out of Lake Superior goes through the St. Mary's River. Again, one of my really fun, cool places. Yeah, your whole face lit up. Oh, yeah, it's it's an awesome place. Not always easy to fish, uh, but it's not a big piece of water, but it's really cool for the opportunities that that you have there. Now, that's Huron? So that's not, it's kind of Lake Huron, you know, so that's part of Lake Huron. Okay, rapid fire, next question. Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan, Grand Traverse Bay, or Beaver Island. And what are you fishing for? Well, Grand Traverse Bay, a wide range of things. Beaver Island is carp and smallmouth. Okay, so be honest with me. First species that crossed your mind was? Probably carp. I knew it. Okay, now this is a fishery that holds supreme interest to me. Obviously, our friend Austin Aducci is a guide there Mm -hmm. for carp. Mm-hmm. And he kind of opened my eyes. I mean, the two of you together, sitting down over, you know, Italian meals, have opened my eyes about this carp fishing there. And you've explained that they pull the boats, right? Austin does, yeah. Yeah, he pulls his boat, and it, it looks, his photographs look like they're on a tropical island. Yeah. Can you explain this area to me? Because well, I'm so interested in it. The northern third of uh, Lake Michigan is pretty much all limestone-based not only from a shoreline aspect, but there's a series of islands in the northern part of the lake. And you you have literally hundreds of square miles of flats. True flats. True flats. Yeah, I mean, anywhere from six inches deep to several feet deep. And you can stalk them on foot like You can stalk the them on foot. You can stalk them out of the boat. The water is crystal, crystal clear. And to my Australian listeners, you don't have to worry about sharks and crocs eating you. How yeah. refreshing. Yeah. You, well, you've seen the bumper sticker, the Great Lakes, unsalted and shark-free. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you don't have uh, any of those dangerous things uh, coming after you. you. Yeah. And so Austin and, and the other guys from Indigo Guide Service that he works with, they literally have a following of anglers that come from around the world to go to Beaver Island and and fish for carp and fly fish for carp. There's been a major resurgence of carp anglers. I know it's huge in the UK, but out here it's really taking storm. Yeah. Do you think that it's warranted? Sure. I've never done it, so I'm asking oh, genuinely. There is there is hard to stalk and sight cast to in clear water. They're the equivalent of just about any saltwater fish that I've ever gone after, permit included. Uh, they are not easy to fool. Right. Uh, I mean, their sensory system is very, very highly developed. Yeah. Whereas, you know, permit has that giant eye. Mm-hmm. Carp have a, a lateral line system. They have an internal bladder that actually amplifies any movement or noise and stuff in the water. Oh, wow. Yeah. Why so, do you think there's that that percentage of people who, every time carp fishing is brought up, they roll their eyes like it's some sort of fad that's not deserved? Yeah, well, carp have always gotten a bad rap, or did get a bad rap for many years in the, in the U.S. in particular as a trash or garbage fish because they can survive in really polluted water. 
Okay. Does that make them trashy or does it make them just more improved as a species? Well, yeah, it makes them more improved as a species, (laughs) actually, when you think about it. Yeah. But, you know, if, if you're used to seeing them in muddy, yucky water, then I guess you develop a perception that, yeah, these fish are like, you know, nasty and not worthy of anything. We have to make it so that people can see their faces and not automatically be revolted. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, the thing about, again, that the northern Lake Michigan uh, fishery in particular is, again, just the water is spectacular. Yeah. It's hard white flats, gravel points and bars and, and sand and anything that... It reminds me of Belize. It does look like yeah, Belize. It reminds me of Belize as much as anywhere I've been. And then if we look at Grand Traverse Bay, just the pure accessibility of it, and having carp there, having smallmouth bass, having the ability to fish some of these river mouth areas for salmon steelhead, in you know, in the lake proper, but mm. you know, fishing at the river mouths. On the flats, can you stock anything else? Uh, I would stock STALK. Uh, generally you're going to be looking at either smallmouth or or cart as far as the flats opportunities. That excites that would excite me. Both oh, those it's places. awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. Okay, so that is our Lake Michigan. Rapid fire Lake Erie. Lake Erie, uh shoreline, rivermouth steelhead. Shoreline, rivermouth steelhead, no boat needed. No boat needed. In the lake proper. In the lake proper. Stripping. Stripping. I'm assuming is that your methodology of choice in that? Correct. Okay, anything that really comes to mind there that might be interesting? Uh, well, uh, east of Erie, Pennsylvania, there is what we call the Mile Creeks, and they're nice natural estuaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually some of the other creeks even to the west of Erie where, again, when the steelhead are, are coming in late summer, early fall staging, where you can get in the lake proper and, and cast and strip flies to them. Cool. Also, there's low water fall that we have had this year where we know there's a lot of fish in the harbor areas waiting to come in. Right. We can throw flies off break walls and jetties Ooh. and have success at times, too. Do they ever adapt by spawning in the lake around the tributary mouth? Mm, good question. Uh, I have not heard that. They may, but I have not heard that happening. Okay. Yeah, so the other thing I would add in on Lake Erie would be mouth of the Detroit River where you've been. Yeah, very For cool multiple fishing. warm water species and like during the month of May and June, pretty much nonstop action mm-hmm. for mainly, you know, white bass, silver bass or stripers, whatever you want to call them, uh, as well as smallmouth bass, largemouth bass. There's northern pike in the area as well as there's some muskies around there too. Yeah, no, I I, I really enjoyed that because in the same day we could go fishing for four or yeah. five different species. And I'll throw Presque Isle Bay into the mix too, right by Erie. Great warm water fishery where there's good wading opportunities okay. or kayak opportunities. Oh, right, that's right. Yeah. Okay, rapid fire, Lake Ontario. Lake Ontario, uh, primary thing would be the lower Detroit or the lower Niagara River. Okay, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Awesome, awesome water. What about in the lake proper? I, I haven't. <clears throat> The main place I've fished in the lake proper has actually been at the mouth of the Niagara. Oh, okay. uh, On the Niagara Bar, which is a big reef that comes up out of 80 feet of water. It comes up to about six feet. Really? In its shallowest spot. 
Yep. Can you wait out on it? Is no, that this is this is a boat deal on this one here. Okay. So that's where I've had most of my in-lake experience in, in Lake Ontario. Okay. But just looking across on the Canadian side, there's the Toronto Islands area in Toronto Harbor, which have a lot of opportunity there. You know, so there's in the, one of the things about the Great Lakes is that you've got some really really good, very high quality fisheries. In, in urban areas, within reach of a lot of different people, you know, yeah. and, and easily and, and quickly available to them. Yeah, thank goodness, actually, because a lot of those urban anglers end up becoming extremely hardcore and avid anglers oh, because it's at their footsteps. It's at their footsteps. It's at their, it's at their doorstep. And so what they end up doing is is they are a lot of our tourism money because they eventually want to branch out and explore all the other fisheries. And they're very talented anglers. Right. So here's... The, I mean, that just kind of, a story comes to mind. This is going back a couple of years, but you've met John Valk from Grindstone Angling in, in yep. Waterdown, Ontario. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I haven't fished with John for a while, but f- hung out with him a few years back for, you know, fairly often. And I remember going out into, uh, oh, was it the mouth of the Credit River? Yeah, but in Lake Ontario proper in float tubes. Oh, wow, okay. And, like, we're casting and stripping flies, and there's, like, 30-pound salmon rolling around next to us, and I'm like, you know, I really don't want to hook one of these because he's going to end up towing me out in the middle of the lake or something like that. So, you know, it was one of those, what the hell am I doing moments, you know, just in case what I want to happen would happen. You know, luckily it didn't, you know, but so stuff like that exists, you know, and this for example, the king salmon population in, in Lake Ontario is, is, is solid, as opposed to like, you know, Lake Michigan, where things are kind of like a little questionable at oh, this okay. point. Oh, okay, that's good to clarify. You know, so it's not all the Great Lakes where the salmon fishing is kind of just, you know, turned into a big question mark. You know, there is like Lake Ontario is really solid still. Okay. Rapid fire Lake Superior. Lake Superior, oh gosh, Nipigon Bay. Oh, cool. Now for, that's brookies, yeah? For coaster brook trout? Yeah. So coaster brook trout are a lake-dwelling form of brook trout. That's why they're so big. They Yes, they get quite big. And all kinds of new research and stuff coming out on these. And they think that, yes, some of these ascend rivers to spawn, but now there's thinking that actually a lot more of this activity is going on on springs in the lake itself, or shoals where there's a lot of current movement mm. in that, and those fish can successfully reproduce there. Are they indigenous? They are indigenous. <gasps> do oh, they yeah. rival? Do they rival the Labrador brookies when it comes to size? Well, the world record, still standing world record brook trout came out of the Nipigon River in excess of 14 pounds. So that genetic strain of brook trout is probably the largest strain. From you know, as far as growth potential and that, the problem is they are like brook trout anywhere, not particularly wary all the time. And over the late 1800s, early 1900s, I mean, they were almost fished to extinction. Uh, I mean, you can go back and and there's books. There's an interesting book called Superior Fishing by Robert Barnwell Roosevelt, who chronicles a trip to the Nipigon area. You know, fishing for what they they call them rock trout because their habitat is a very narrow band along the shoreline. I have seen that. Yeah. Okay. They don't you you don't find them out 
in open water or anything like Even that. Even when they're trying to feed? Wait, mm-hmm. so not just for spawning, you mean... That's where they live. They live in That's those... where they live the whole time. They're very near, it's... They, they inhabit along the shoreline. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. The thing about the Nipigon area is that the scenery is totally spectacular. It's what's called the Canadian Shield, which is pre-Cambrian era rock, volcanic rock, and it's referred to as the backbone of the earth. It's some of the oldest rock formations on the planet. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, and you have these huge bluffs and cliffs, sometimes seven, eight hundred feet high, just going right down to the water. The other thing, you're in almost like a boreal forest there, and, you know, down where we're at here, we're actually in a temperate zone, so traveling north and south on the lakes, it doesn't take too long before you enter several, you know, climatic zones, Mm -hmm. you know, that way too. So that's another thing about the lakes too, is just very quick change in climate as you go north to south. Yeah. Uh, but coasters are are really, really cool. I think that it may intimidate a lot of people who would, for example, like to read your book, but they think they need to have a boat. Are there a lot of opportunities, or is there a lot of opportunity for people to go fishing without having a boat in the Great Lakes? Yeah. Yep. There is. Well, yeah. To answer your question, yes. There is. Do you, you know, do you acknowledge that in the book? I absolutely do. Yes. Okay. You know, obviously, you don't necessarily need a power boat to do a lot of it. A canoe or kayak will open up a lot of additional areas to you, but there is a lot of good park the car, get out, and start fishing opportunities there too. Right. You know, and again, some of it is in major, you know, urban areas. I. You know, we didn't. I didn't touch on Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The harbor in Milwaukee is an awesome, awesome small boat and even walk to and fish area. Is that in your book? Uh, it's yeah, it's in the book. See, yeah. it's just all the more reason to get the damn book. Yeah, Jerry, is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? Well, you know, there's a lot of environmental issues going on in the Great Lakes, like anywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. One thing that kind of struck me in watching your presentation on the historical side of steelhead fishing is is that no matter how hard we've tried to kill them, they they keep coming back. Yeah. And I can look at the Great Lakes that way, almost as a living organism, where we've done so much to try and kill the Great Lakes, and if we just give them give them a chance, they they, they can actually heal themselves. And we've seen that happen periodic times, even in, in, you know, in my lifetime. We've seen things change significantly. The other thing is when we look at invasive species, and maybe this is controversial, and maybe you'll even edit this out. We'll see. I don't know. Uh, I almost think at times that invasive species are like part of the plant. For whom? Just... Nature? Nature. Oh, I guess it depends who they're invading. Right. You know, we may not always like what the result is. Sometimes the result's better. But... When is there an example of nature where it's been better? Uh, now you're pinning me down. And I Sorry, I love that topic. Yeah. Uh, 
You know, I'd have to actually think a little bit on that one. But if you look at, you know, just species distribution, look at a place like, I don't know, an isolated place like the Galapagos or something like that. How did stuff get there? It wasn't, I mean, it drifted, it floated, it, it, yeah. it got blown there on the wind and, I guess there's, there's and a things difference. like that. Yeah, there's a difference between natural invasive and man-made invasive. But if you wanted to be highly philosophical about that, man is natural, so therefore, yeah, I get it. Oh, okay. oh we need more than just a coffee for this one. Yeah, We're going to so, need a scotch you know, and a late I, night. That, that kind of spins around in my head a little bit a lot of times is, you know, we, we try and... Are we? Tr we try to discredit nature. Discredit everything. Even though we are nature We're itself. We're part of nature, you know. So. Huh. Uh, That's a very interesting closing thought. Yeah. So I don't know. So again, it's philosophical. You get a little bit of spiritual stuff involved in there, and uh -huh. you know. Uh, I'm so. Let's leave it with that, and uh, maybe a little food for thought down the road. Well, I'm gonna. I might just have to reach out to somebody at one of the universities and see if we can give that that a whole podcast in itself. I think it, I think that'd be a fascinating subject. We're doing our part in maybe creating additional diversity and just expanding things. It's just done on a different natural scale than what we normally think yet. Yeah, or it's so close to home that we just can't see it. Maybe steelhead aren't the adaptive ones, but we are. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.